0: Today, I don't delude myself anymore, and I recognize the signs of this quiet. I'm conscious there's almost nothing left, but also conscious of what is missing, confronting the opaqueness of the present with the fire and fulgor of the past, when I demanded the impossible from life. For then, Everything seemed easy. I was taken by emotions that, at the time, were condemnable. For that I hid my passions or I deluded them, pretending to submit, faking to be my contrary, but inside unwilling to accept the limits imposed by my condition as a woman. Ambitious as Madame du Châtelet, against the will of Voltaire. Yesterday, Inside the volume of poems by Byron, I discover sonnets I wrote in my first years of exile in London. In them, it is visible both my roots, but also the blooming of the sneaking disobedience in obstinate and continuous growth. How many times did I lose and regain the strength that willed me further, unprotected and determined in pacing the roads of Europe? From that time I have kept the determination that only now, after I'm old and consider myself finished, some appreciate as a feature of my character and personality, without them realizing that the fire is still burning in my chest and how I still suffocate in front of mediocrity, refusing to become unworthy in a devastated land where no plant survives amongst the spikes. But did I, in the end, keep too much of myself quiet? Could my life have been any different? In the 18 years I was forced to live in the convent of St. Felix, in shellish, due to the supreme will of a despot, soon made me determined to exist or by condemning my grandparents' Tavura to death, by arresting my father in the dungeons of Junqueira and closing my mother up in a monastery with my sister and I, Sebastião, José de Carvalho e Melo, thought he could salt the floor of my destiny. Lisbon is a theater of horrors for a granddaughter of the Tavurash.
1: These are some of the words that opened the wonderful novel As Luzes de Leonor, The Lights of Leonor, by Maria Teresa Horta. They hint at all the major traits that make up the character of Leonor de Lorna, the incredible woman that we will be talking about on this episode. Welcome to another episode of Corkout History,
0: where we drink Portuguese wine, and
1: we talk about Portuguese history,
0: Uh, mostly the wine. My name is André, and I'm Inês, Uh,
1: welcome to... Work out history but first how are you in it
0: i'm i'm very good andre how are you i'm really excited to be doing this episode it will be a little bit different from what we usually do
1: yes 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 it will yes i am good too i've been traveling lately so it's all a bit hectic but i'm back in london now and it's all good and today joining us, we have a little special bottle of wine with us. Oh, it's a red wine. Yes,
0: we do. Um, of course it's red wine. From, <laughs> yes, of course it's red wine, I know.
1: Uh, and it's a red wine from Quinta da Lorna. And what estate is this? It's the actual estate founded by Don Pedro da Lorna in 1723. And Don Pedro da Lorna is the brother of our main character today. How
0: fitting!
1: Yes. That's amazing. this is a wine... Yeah, this is a one from 2018, uh, from their estate, and that's in the Tagos River region. So we've drank a few of those already, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, we have. And this one is called Marquesa de Lorna, which translated is... Marcus of Alorna, uh, our one and only Leonor, the one we'll be drinking to today. So let's have a toast.
0: Yes, definitely. Let's have a toast. This is amazing. I can't believe the wine we are drinking is actually named after the person we're going to be speaking about. It couldn't be, it couldn't, it's a match made in heaven. Couldn't be any better.
1: No, it's perfect. It, it really is perfect.
0: All right. So cheers. Let me have a sip of that. Cheers.
1: Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Chin chin. Oh, it's good, isn't it?
0: Yes. <laughs> it's delicious. It's amazing.
1: Yes. yes. is enough. Yes. Yes is enough.
0: So, before we dive in today into this special episode, we would just like to tell you a little bit more about who's guiding us here today. Today, we follow the lines of Maria Teresa Horta. Maria Teresa Horta is a Portuguese writer and poet, and she's still active today. And she's also one of the major figures of Portuguese 20th century literature. Once again, very fitting, she's also the great-great-granddaughter of Leonor de Lorna, the woman we're going to be talking about. So...
1: It's quite amazing, yeah. It We're is, drinking it the is. wine I... from their estate. The book that we'll be reading some passages from is written by her great great granddaughter. It's all all in the We family.
0: are on theme here.
1: Yes, <laughs> absolutely.
0: In 2012, after decades of research, she published this amazing novel about the life of Leonor. This 18th century woman that questioned the limits imposed to her gender and that always felt Portugal was way too small for her. From the walls of the cell in which she was imprisoned by her family prosecution to the salons where her intelligence and cultivated spirit tried to fly too high for her time.
1: But wait, 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 wait. We will get to (laughs) Leonor in a bit, but there's more, isn't there?
0: Yes. Now, Maria Teresa Orta needs a few more words from us, doesn't she? Um, she is not only the author of this biography that mixes history, true words from her ancestor and a little bit of imagination, but she was also the author of one of the most controversial books of the 20th century.
1: Yes, because in 1972, three Portuguese women published a three-hand book, and those women were Maria Teresa Orta... Maria Isabel Barreno and Maria Velho da Costa. They became known, very fittingly, as the Three Marias, the <laughs> Três Marias, uh, because they all have the same name. The book that she, they wrote all together stems from a book called Lettres Portugueses, and that was a book published in France in 1668 and that supposedly contained letters of Mariana Alcufurado, a nun that had fell in love and was heartbroken by the chevalier de Chamili. The book that was written by these three Marias, based on that one, um, and we never n- we've never known until today who wrote what part of the book, was deemed pornographic and an attempt against morals by the dictatorship in Portugal. Um, surprise! Spoke surprise! It about yeah uh, the themes of female uh, love and lust and sex and uh, everything were in there. Yeah. And yes, so of we don't want was. to be.
0: <laughs> yeah. Of course, it wasn't.
1: No, not very welcomed, and. The trial that started in 1974 had international impact with other voices from the international feminist movement like Simone de Beauvoir joining the protests to stop this trial and to stop these three women from being persecuted for their book. Amazing. The outrage was far and out and... The trial would eventually come to an end with the Portuguese Carnation Revolution on the eve of the 25th of April of 1974, when the dictatorship ended.
0: Yes, we shall maybe talk about that next year, in yes. April, who knows? Seems <laughs> yes, seems like we'll a good time to... Exactly. Yeah, maybe
1: we'll celebrate the, the revolution here as well. Exactly. <laughs> Anyway, now out of the rabbit hole about Maria Teresa Horta and on to Leonor, the subject of her book. And throughout this episode, we will be guided by own words of Leonor, by the words that Maria Teresa Horta wrote on this uh, novel, by a combination of all that. So join us on this journey.
0: Awesome. So, we're going to be reading about a great woman in the words of a great woman herself.
1: Yes, correct. (laughs) Very true. Very true, very true.
0: Leonor de Almeida de Portugal, Marquesa de Alorna, so um, the Marquise of Alorna, Mm -hmm. and she went by the pseudonym of uh, Alcipe, was born in Lisbon in 1750 and would die in the same city in 1839. Leonor is born into one, if not the most, important family of the kingdom, and always held important governmental and political placements. Part of the court, their power was on the rise. Leonor is born in the year of the death of King Juan V, Yes, you know the one, we've mentioned him in previous episodes, and he's Andre's favorite. (laughs) By the time of her birth, the kingdom was on the eve of a major turning point.
1: Dressed to go to mass with her parents at the sung mass of 10 o'clock in St. Magdalene's church, the little girls run from the house to the garden, where they try to hide amidst the, the geometrical aisles running between bushes, trying to contain laughter and the will to run... Although they feel contrived in their Cambrai dresses, jewel and foils of clothing making their pace slower, headpieces needed for that first day of November, that soften them but make them sweat, for it seems the peak of summer more than an All Saints Day, heading to winter. Without barely speaking, joyous to be in the outside, they go to the fountain with the marble angels, in which they bathe their hands and small wrists, for just after, splashing one to the other, running around the tilias and cedar trees, close to the walls that separate the hood along the to prison, where a prisoner looks at them from the window, fascinated by the light in which the two girls play in the garden of their palace. But as they laugh and laugh, and as they're close to hiding in the shade of the purple roses, a revolted and quiet clamor coming from the guts of the earth reaches them, at the same time that the ground escapes their feet, making them lose their balance. Frightened, They close their eyes while trying to make sense of the light that shakes, dancing in front of their fair eyes, paralyzed in a slow trance of fear, just to suddenly holding on to each other, scared facing the convulsion of the earth, and the intense roaring that comes up, mixed with the untimely sound of bells, calls in panic around them, shouting, prayers and screams, all coming together in an unbearable roar that rises through the shaken hills of Lisbon, where ruin after ruin already stands. From afar, Already a sound comes from the ruins, through where later a tsunami will take whatever little is left. Every time the the earth seems to stop, they run more with hope, not able to avoid the cracks in the soil from where a flaming putrid liquid comes up. Straight away, however, the shaking recommences, taking down, finishing what is yet to be destroyed, and in their fright they fall, they rise, they get hurt. Unruly hair stuck against their faces, wet by sweat and tears that run mindlessly through them, they try to hold on to whatever they can. We are going to die, says Maria, and Leonor, for a final effort, pushes her towards their house, while trying to distinguish the path ahead. More instinct than thought to protect her sister from the horses that run blindly, neighing, stepping on everything as they move, amidst the darkness of the morning that had so recently been bright and clear.
0: In 1755, the city of Lisbon was destroyed by the great earthquake of Lisbon. On the morning of Saturday, 1st November, Feast of All Saints, at around 9.40 in the morning, followed by fires and a tsunami, the earthquake almost completely destroyed Lisbon and the adjoining areas. Seismologists estimate the Lisbon earthquake had a magnitude of 7.7 or greater. There are records of at least two big earthquakes before this one. 1321 and 1531. Yes, following the pattern, a new one should already have happened. But, I mean, let's not think about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, when I used to do guided tours in Lisbon, we always used to talk about the earthquake, of course, because it changed the city so much. And I always used to tell people that another <laughs> one should be coming soon and you should have seen their faces. <laughs> their faces were priceless. They were on holiday in Lisbon and somebody was telling them that
0: uh, I mean, they that's how might you. come. Maybe this is your last holiday. Enjoy. Have fun. Try <laughs> yes, <basically>. our wine. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah.
1: yeah. Anyway, but 14 minutes after that earthquake, the tsunami came while the city was already burning... With all the candles in churches that were prepared for the day's festivities and most things were built in wood and major fires hit throughout the city as well.
0: Yeah, I mean we know how devastating fires in middle ages and antiqu- antiquity can be, right? It's just, yeah, it never stops.
1: <laughs> now you get the combo earthquake, fires and a tsunami. <laughs>
0: I mean, yes. if that's not apocalypse right there, I don't know what is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, some said it was. Anyway, the waves of the earthquake reached far beyond the country. It reached as far as Greenland and the Caribbean. Yeah, some later studies even say that it's likely that the tsunami wave also hit Brazil. There are some records of people uh, mentioning like changes in the sea at that same time. That's insane. Uh, And, of course, throughout Europe as well, even Voltaire uh, wrote about it. So it was felt not only in Portugal, but, of course, the epicenter was like 100, 200 kilometers from the shore in Portugal. So it's what was mostly hit. And, of course, that between the damage and generalized panic, a new city was to be born from the ruins of this one. But that city, with a lot less documents from the past than... We should have. The amount of documents, libraries, and general wealth that was lost in that day has marked the country in so many ways, and, and even what we know about the country before that as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. We we mentioned it also in our last episode, didn't we? It's one of those devastating points to all knowledge that we have uh, and yeah. records. If a natural disaster shaped the future of Lisbon and the kingdom, A man-made one was about to dawn on Leonor's family as well. With the end of King John V's reign, his son, King Joseph I, rose to power and with him, one of the most controversial and peculiar figures in Portuguese history, the Marquess of Pombal, Sebastião José de Carvalho e Melo. It's a long name, guys.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. This is the one that Leonor mentioned on those first words we read on the at the beginning yeah yeah yeah. this is the man and this man climbing through the ranks of portuguese nobility came to be a fundamental figure on the aftermath of the earthquake he quickly organized the rescue of the surviving and to this day people repeat his legendary and i mean that it's a legend not that that it's great that it was time to bury the dead and care for the living however Some historians actually attribute that sentence to Leonor's brother, Dom Pedro de Lorna, the one that founded the vineyard, which we're drinking from.
0: Oh, wow. I had no clue. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the sentences that has made history in Portugal, isn't it? And I think it's just a great example of the pragmatism that the Marques of Mm -hmm. Pombal became Mm -hmm. famous for And that was absolutely necessary after such a great disaster.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's also very connected to that idea of organization and rationalism (laughs) and all that. But, but, I would like (laughs) to add a note to say that although the Marquis and his team of architects were responsible for rebuilding the city... The projects of the glory and grandeur in which they decided to do so, opening larger avenues, building a new palace... Yeah. These were already part of the project of King John V, so of I'm not... Of course they no, were! listen... <laughs> Listen to me. That's not what yeah. I'm doing here. There All were right. projects. There were projects <laughs> from architects, and the, basically the architects that work on rebuilding the city after the earthquake are the same architects that were already working with yeah. King John yeah. V. Yeah, okay, they are older that. men that had been around, and and John, as any Baroque king, had major plans to change the city. Yeah, major refurbishments Probably. in the palace, yeah. everything. But I guess
0: making it a little bit less. Confusing and medieval yes. in a way, and more organized.
1: But the opportunity—and I'm uh, with inverted commas because I'm not sure <laughs> we can call an opportunity to an earthquake that killed disaster. forty thousand people—only <laughs> yes. came after John V. So someone else had to carry his plans. Anyway, this is just my side note.
0: Yeah. All right. But fair enough. Yeah. I imagine that uh, you know, if you have uh, a city already standing. You might have all these grand plans, but there's really no way that you can, you know, exactly. unless you, you set the city Crash on fire. Crash it all to the ground, yes, to the <laughs> ground. I, I get your point, all right, I'll let it slide. <laughs> we have the records and the sources <laughs> to say that, that's all right, go on. <laughs> we do, we do, we do, I do. I can send you
1: links and, and bibliography if anyone needs. But anyway, of course, that this only surmounted to the importance of the Marquis of Pombal as Joseph the I's right hand and he kept on growing and growing in power and frightening the Portuguese nobility. And not only he changed the city, he also started prosecuting everyone that was in his way, from nobles to monastic orders to the Jesuits. But the most famous trial he ever made happen was the Tavuras trial. And yes, the Tavuras are Leonor's family.
0: When they tell her the sentence by the court, the Marcus of Tavora only raises her head in silence, straightening her pose at the table of the convent where she was arrested. Some think she grew pale when she heard the death penalty, others say the opposite. With certainty, we only know the words she said, let it be fast, what must be done. After that, when she tries to know what will happen to her husband and sons, they only tell her, equal in death. No one will ever know if Leonor de Tavura cried in silence in her cell that tempestuous night. According to the nuns of her convent, on the next day she still presents her severe and tranquil look, as of always. Only her eyes, a violet blue, although dry and shiny, look the abyss. But the marquis demands her right of reading her own sentence, a wish that is granted to the accused Marquess, wife of the accused Francisco de Assis de Tavura, for some justified considerations, and withdrawing some deserved ones. In the same stage and there she is to die of natural death, with her head removed from her body, which will then be laid from fire to dust and thrown into the sea. All her possessions and house are to be for the crown as she reads, only the same comment leaves her lips. Let it be fast, what must be done.
1: That part where she reads her own sentence, it's actually the words of the sentence that was inflicted on her. Leonore's father, so the Marquis is Leonore's grandmother, but Leonor's father, who was married to one of the daughters of that other Leonor, was also arrested. Okay. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna put a little genealogical thre- tree in our Instagram so that you can look at. Yeah, uh, I mean, families uh, Because it lighter. makes it easier. Yeah. <laughs> and They're all wrong. the all the extended family was imprisoned. The direct family was sentenced to death. The extended family was in prison. I saw my husband left the house assaulted by the troops when they came to take him at dawn, while we were still in bed, me, around in bed without being able to rest, my chest compressed for a fear I did not have a reason for yet, trying to not disturb Juan, that by my side slept a profound and relaxed sleep, lullabied by a tranquillity that until then made sense. But the astounding noise coming from the patio by the entrance gate and under our window woke him up, in a fright and without a clue taken aback by haunting feelings. And right there he pushed me from his arms, ordering in a rispid tone that wasn't familiar to me until that moment, go see the children and don't let them go. Without knowing what I was doing, I took the little Pedro from bed, slept ridden, when I felt Leonora pulling from my sleeve, making me face her whiteness of call, the blue eyes filled with questions, while Maria, barefoot and shaking of fear, held my waist. I handed them to their nanny, and I was on the corridor intending to go back to the room I should never have left, when the judge, Eusébio Tavares, that on that day, 13th of September of 1758, would also arrest my brothers and my brother-in-law, showed by my side prohibiting my steps, without a word showing me the royal decree that authorised him to arrest my husband, signed by Queen Dona Mariana Vitoria that was governing while King Joseph I was recovering from the wounds inflicted on his death attempt that had been kept secret and taken place on the night of the 3rd of September. According to the judge, the queen had ordered me, as well as my sister, to be detained in our own houses. While they took him, hidden behind me, Leonor watched her dad being taken by coward pushings, she being the one that kept me from falling.
0: Why? How? How? What is the excuse to have a whole family, the most important family of the kingdom, arrested? Arrested, put away, and part of it sentenced to death?
1: So that's the Tavura Affair. And the Tavura Affair, as it became known, is one of the greatest scandals of Portuguese politics. The grand finale was triggered by an assassination attempt of the king in 1758. But wait, wait, before we get there, what did the Tavora family have to do with that? Until this day, we are unsure. But King Joseph I had a mistress, and that mistress was Teresa Leonor, the wife of Luis Bernardo, the heir to the Tavora family, son of the Marquis Leonor de Tavora and Francisco Assis, Viceroy of India, head of the family. These were the grandparents of Leonor, as we said before, And they were closely tied to the Jesuits. Padre Malagrida was one of the most important Jesuits of the country and was a personal friend. And as we said, they were nothing but one of the most important families in the kingdom.
0: Yeah, so basically they were way too powerful for their own good.
1: Yeah, and also there was that easy connection that could be used of the king being the lover of... The daughter-in-law of the big marquise. Uh, So, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I guess that was the excuse. The connection was there. There was a, a connection between the king and the Tavuras, And they needed to be gone. So. It's nearly half past 11 on the night of the 3rd of September of 1758. A squalid night with winds that swept her body. Teresa. Lying on her naked elbow, watches the king get dressed. She felt him worried the whole time. And she too was scared with the idea of going back home, knowing she was being spied on the whole time and threatened by her parents-in-law, while her husband, Luis Bernardo, didn't even notice her absence. Why don't you stay a little longer with me? She asks the king. But. King Joseph is impatient, the court is in mourning for the death of his sister, and on occasions as such he is not supposed to leave the palace. His siege men, Custodio de Costa, is surprised to see him leave so early, but getting the signal they start on the way back to the palace. As we move past the arch, three men on horses and with their heads covered came upon us shouting and shooting, this man will later say. It's then that someone asks him if, by any chance, he might have seen someone from the Tavura family in the... Startled by the question, Custodio says he didn't even have the chance to see anything more than what he had already declared. It was also sudden that he only had time to run and take the king with him.
1: That was the night in which Joseph I's attempted assassination took place. Along the way back to the palace, coming from Teresa's arms, two or three men intercepted the carriage and fired on its occupants. Joseph I was shot in the arm and his driver was badly wounded, but both of them survived.
0: Sebastian de Melo took control of the situation. For days he kept the attack a secret, initiating an inquiry. Nice and quick. A few days later, two men were arrested for the shootings and under torture, they confessed their guilt and stated that they were following the orders of the Tavura family who were plotting to put the Duke of Aveiro on the throne. Both men were hanged the following day, even before the attack was made public.
1: Yes, very convenient having someone under torture saying that someone else ordered the attack and the link there was also that the Tavora family, they were the only ones that could know where the king was because they knew that the king was with her, with Theresa. In the following weeks, Leonor of Tavora, her husband, and all of their sons, daughters, and grandchildren were imprisoned, as we already said. Other conspirators, or alleged conspirators, like the Duke of Aveiro, uh, the, the Tavora's sons-in-law, the Marquis of Lorna, father of our Leonor, and other counts were arrested with their families. The Jesuit priest that was personal friend of the Marquis of Tavora was also arrested. All were accused of high treason and attempted regicide. The evidence presented was very simple. The confessions of the executed assassins, the murder weapon that apparently belonged to the Duke, and what I just said that the Tavoras were the only ones that would have known where the king was that night because they would have known that he was with his mistress, Teresa of Tavura. They were promptly sentenced to death, their estates were confiscated by the crown and their palace in Lisbon was destroyed with its soil being salted and their name erased from um, everywhere and their coat of arms outlawed.
0: I mean that's dramatic, okay? The soil was salted? <laughs> I mean, that's a little bit over the top, all right? Yeah, yeah, that's Um, how you do it. The name Erase reminds me of, you know, um, Damnation Memoriae from the Roman times. That's that's insane. That's okay. They really went the extra step. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Oh, goodness. The original sentence ordered the execution of entire families, including women and children. Only the intervention of Queen Mariana and Maria Francisca, the heiress to the throne, saved most of them. The Marquise, however, was not spared. She and the other defendants sentenced to death were publicly tortured and executed on January 13, 1759, in a field near Lisbon. The king was present with his bewildered court. The Tavuras were their peers and kin. But the Prime Minister wanted a lesson-driven home. As we mentioned, afterwards the ground was salted to prevent future growth of vegetation and to this day, in this location, remains an alley called Beco do Chão Salgado which stands for Alley of the Salted Ground.
1: Malagrida, the Jesuit priest, was burned at the stake in September 1761, a few years later, and the Jesuit order was outlawed that same year. All their estates were also confiscated and all the Jesuits were expelled from Portuguese territory, both in Europe and in the former colonies. The Alorna family, and the daughters of the Duke of Aveiro were the ones that were spared, but they were sentenced to life imprisonment in various monasteries and convents. And that's where we're going to find Leonor. Sebastián de Melo, however, was made Count of Oeiras for his competent handling of the affair, and later in 1770 was promoted to Marquis of Pombal, the title that we know him today and which he got through all this.
0: He's one of those figures isn't it in our history like he's larger than life just this week he came up in one of our posts on instagram in a post where he brought around the um, end of the inquisition
1: he's, he's definitely not black and white there's people that think of him as this guy that made everything right rebuilding the city etc etc but there's also this other side that we're just seeing Absolutely. here the side where he is responsible for the death of an institution that needed to go so there's a lot of different sides to him
0: I feel like through history we do a lot we used to and we do a lot the history of great men right
1: yeah. and
0: he's one of those great men and that's not necessarily the way that we want to keep looking at history but you know there's no doubt that some personalities really do stand out and they mark history in ways that we can't even, we're still dealing with some of the stuff that he, of his legacies. So I feel like he's such an extraordinarily complex and interesting figure. I would really like to look into him later on because it's like, we have so many good things coming from him and we have as well so many terrible things and the Tavuras was definitely in stain in what he left us and the persecution to the religious orders. It's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot going on, but I would really like to look into him, maybe for a short episode in the future, who knows. If not, I'm sure that he will definitely keep coming up in a lot of our episodes.
1: It is not yet 7am on the morning of 13th of January 1759, a dawn marked by a soft light and an eclipse, when the Marquess is taken from the convent to the port of Belay, where during the night a stage has been built of wood with a ladder leading to it. They had taken everything from her, except her dignity, honor, her pride, and innocence. Leaving her siege, she sets foot on the mud-filled soil of the port. Leonhard Tavura shakes and leans forward with the wind on her skirts. Two priests come to help her, but she refuses, kneeling on the first step of the ladder, where she confesses for more than an hour, a small voice, just a breath. And slowly she is calmer, despite her nerves, the tension, the fright that hits her. No one can defend her now, she is alone. Then she gets up, followed by the priests. She climbs to where the undertakers with their masks await. She faces them with her burning clear eyes, not seeing their faces behind the mask, but knowing that they draw their eyes to the floor, the three of them architects of her death. On their cruelty job, they explain her in detail how they'll treat each of her sons and her husband breaking their bones, dismantling their bodies, burning them alive, decapitating them. Demarcus tries to fight the will to faint, her face serene, unmoved, a small tremble of her lips. She bites her lips and says firmly, may God grant them that they know how to die as who they were. Around her, the crowd start gathering to see closer, shouting insults to her. After the undertaker removes her cloth, she is sat on the chair, and with her tied hands, she tries to fix her skirt, being unable to do so, stepping her foot on it. And when they move closer, trying to undress her, she feels the despise so great that the crowd hears her shout, do not discompose me. And those are her last words.
0: To this day, many discuss if this whole affair was or- an orchestrated move. For me it's very clear. Yes, it was. This move not only allowed him to move further up but also to send a message to every family of the country. The Marquess was the one and true power of the kingdom. The jesuits were gone and the most important family of the kingdom burned to the ground.
1: This meant that the first 18 years of Leonor's life were spent locked in the convent of Schelles.
0: We were standing in front of the convent of St. Felix, in the valley of Chelles, which wooden doors, tainted and worn by the ears, took long to open. We went through them, shaking with cold, soaking wet, after we had waited in a little patio, surrounded by blue and white tiles with geometrical drawings fading. Or so I remember as the soldiers guided us with lit torches on that tempest night of December 1758. Flames wobbling under the rain, barely lightening the steps. A couple of nuns awaited us, curious, but suspicious, and the mother superior, her eyes cast down, but visibly unpleased with the clear signs of our broken heart and the unkept look we had at that time of night. Maria and Pedro, were softly crying against the silk skirts of my mother pale white and I, making myself slower trying to see in the dark in the cell that would be my bedroom for 18 years laying in the narrow and cold bed I kept my eyes open all night taken by the fear of what although I could not yet understand already frightened me by its abyss in the room next door my mother stayed with Pedro, trying uselessly to rest and reassure him. A few days later, he would be taken from us and back to our house in Street de Boa Only then did I start realizing the dimension of the tragedy that ruined our lives, although I couldn't yet grasp the essence of what was happening to us. What sort of cataclysm had been put in motion by the tyrant and ferocious power of the Secretary of State, Sebastião José de Carvalho e Melo, the undertaker of our family. From that first night, I still keep astoundingly vivid the hopefully fantasy that next day I would wake up at home, or in the arms of my grandmother, Leonor de Tavura, who I didn't know was already in prison. And when later, a vicious nun told me all the details of her barbaric death, I felt hatred being born deep inside me, a feeling I hadn't known before. Confused feelings poisoning my blood, trying to take over my frightened little girl's heart. However, the books, the lights and poetry saved me, by spilling honey where hatred and fell and anger had laid their dutiful works. Leonor grew up surrounded by walls, but trying to surpass them on her books. Tutored by Francisco Manuel do Nascimento, her horizons grew far and wide.
1: As for Feliciana in our latest, latest episode, the convent became a place of erudition and, although she shocked and mesmerized the nuns around her, as she grew, a larger and larger crowd started showing up at the gates of the convent for literature, philosophy and history discussions. Suárez that took the name of Leonor out of the convent before she even did. There was a deep valley carved between those that came from the side of the light, bringing silk, satin and perfumes from the palaces, balls, and saloons and Maria and Leonor, stuck inside of darkness uh, and shadow, drawing her modest dresses through the floor. From that time on, the doors of the convent of Shellos, with the fascinated uh, support of some of the nuns, especially the younger ones, the poetic discussions, the literature debates, the dissertations about astronomy and botanic mathematics and philosophy started, the education of women. In a fast turmoil, Leonor suppressed the limits and margins, she broke stereotypes and quickly left the most profound anonymity to to be talked and discussed in the saloons. She reached the court, her fame and erudition, as well as copies of her poems, with her name going from mouth to mouth, by the unusual fact of being woman, cultivated, talented and intelligent. All the while, in the saloons of Lisbon, she was regarded with admiration for her beauty, while at the same time highlighted the unwary of her knowledge, both in literature, humanities or sciences. Curious with all this enthusiasm, but worried for the fact that this was stemming from a family he thought he had annihilated, Sebastian José de Carvalho Mel urged the archbishop to harden his power in the convent and find someone that would be willing to, day and night, spy on the eldest daughter of the Marquis of Alorna,
0: it's really like a dog with a bone isn't Yes
1: it? <laughs> he is, doesn't leave him alone. Ah.
0: It was also still at the convent that another event would shape Leonor's life.
1: I walked to the gates of the convent of Chalice for the first time attracted by the fame of intelligence and beauty of Leonor Dalmeida. Although I know some of her enthusiastic admirers I came alone and for that I was ill at ease. But as I am a cousin of the Count of Lippe Familiar with the mother superior I was welcomed by the nuns And hence why I was coldly regarded By the daughters of Alorna Persistent I insisted on coming back
0: Oh, Sir Count of Oyenhausen, Looks like you've got the taste for the poems
1: They told me yesterday in French In an ironical fashion
0: And surprise The Count of Oienhausen Would in time become her husband.
1: Leonor leaves then the convent in 1777, and yet again, the country had just started changing. You're gonna love this one.
0: The Queen Mariana Vitoria takes on the Regency of Portugal on the 29th November, 1776. After signing the necessary documents, sumptuously paramented, she walks to the King's chambers where she enters quietly. With a single gesture, she orders everyone to leave the royal bed. Only then she inclines herself over the bed, in which her husband dies devoured by pain and several apoplexies that have paralyzed him. She does not say a word. She does not offer a consoling gesture. Does not touch him. Does not caress him. With a lost gaze, she thinks of how he took her far too young and how, indifferent to her feelings, throughout the years he had abandoned her, her body and her love trading her for others. Above all, the new Marquise, Teresa de Tavura, supreme humiliation, from which she had never had revenge. She curves further, And tells him, "I am the queen."
1: When Leonor comes to the light of Lisbon, a new kingdom is then emerging. Shadows of the past still linger, but the Marquis of Pombal has been pushed away from the court. His power too great, and a new regent is controlling the reins of the, the kingdom.
0: Quickly, Leonor's poetry and wit spreads through Lisbon. Her family reunited, she soon marries Carlos, Pedro, Maria, José, Augusto, again long ass names, Count of Ovojenhausen, against her father's will. But then again, there's just another struggle on the many that mark her life. On her marriage contract, her father even added a clause stating that her husband was obliged not to take her out of the kingdom, not for an occasion, nor any other, only if she is to be in service of the crown and majesty of the kingdom. This is quite terrible for Leonor and she protests and demands that no one is to sign it before she speaks with the queen, which she manages and by pleading and pleading she gets her husband appointed to Vienna opening the doors of Europe to her. She had an excuse to come along.
1: They must be commenting the departure of Donna Leonor d'Almeida and of the Count her husband on their way to Austria. The Queen, whom Leonor had come to say goodbye a week ago, looks at her sister and daughter-in-law with intensity and says, I just hope I haven't made a mistake sending the Count as an ambassador to Vienna. To which the Princess replies, it's her who should have been nominated. With the Count and his positions, Leonor starts to travel through Europe, adding even more knowledge and world to her already larger-than-life interests. Leonor visits many courts along the way, they stop in Madrid, they then go to Versailles, Vienna, and she deals with kings and queens, and she is enchanting wherever she goes.
0: I visited the natural history cabinet, which is magnificent, and one of the things that I found most astonishing is the small room in which they have everything they stole from the Americas, their idols, their faithful musical instruments, their arms, and a thousand things more that stupidity and cruelty have taken from an ignorant people without even knowing their uses. They have a small vase there, in which when pouring water onto, and trying to drink it, You hear such loud noises that it sounds as if someone is complaining. And just from this small thing, one can see that they were not as far behind as some say of them, because they were perfectly aware of the laws of mechanics.
1: These are actually like Leonor's words. It's part of a letter that she wrote to a friend. And it's quite amazing, isn't it? That's amazing.
0: It's just, you know, back... At that time, having a voice that reads in this way, Mm -hmm. that's astonishing, really.
1: Yeah, it's there. In Paris, she meets with Marie Antoinette, amongst many others, but with Marie Antoinette herself, (laughs) whom she will follow closely on her later days, worried with the destinies of the royal families of Europe. The letters that come from France confirm her worst fears. The blood still runs through the streets of Paris, Avignon and Marseille. Leonor understands then that Paris will never again be a solution for her life. Then she moves to other parts, and one of them is Vienna.
0: She is in Vienna for more than a year, until one day, in the imperial palaces, she sees Mozart for the first time. She goes dressed in carmine silk, grey pearls in her hair as the ones she used for her portrait. The emperor himself introduces them mentioning the ties of music and poetry that make the connection between all the arts. He bows and she bows.
1: Leonora and her family eventually moved back to Portugal in 1785, when her husband was appointed as lieutenant-general. Leonora then became a lady-in-waiting to Princess Carlota Joaquina, the wife of João, Prince of Brazil. Another king that Leonor has met. So her life is so long that she goes through... I haven't counted them, but I think it's at least four or five different kings of Portugal. Kings and queens and, and regents.
0: Mozart, yeah. like... Can we just take a second? I know. It's uh, I know. <laughs> all these great people just... <laughs> I'm turning the corner. Oh, hi, Beau. Oh, hi. Hi, how you doing? Yeah, I'm moving on. There's a queen waiting for me there. Marie Antoinette. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Can you pass the salt, please?
1: <laughs> not the salt. Not the salt. But apparently she she actually took letters between Marie Antoinette and the Empress of Austria. So, yeah. Marie Antoinette's she was, mother. Yes.
0: Oh, right, okay yes. I mean yeah,
1: okay, <laughs> so she was she was in all the right places, huh
0: yeah i I yeah. mean I
1: she was in the amazing. room where it happened,
0: yeah, exactly, <laughs> that is amazing that's that's yeah, that's quite something,
1: yeah, so back in Portugal she became again, everyone knew her already, but she became even a more popular personality and she opened a literary salon, another one this time called the Society of the Rose and a place that welcomed the likes of Leonor, as a published poet herself, Bukaj, and so many other poets. We've recently spoke about Bukaj because we celebrated his the anniversary of his death or of his birth.
0: Yes, we celebrated his birthday on the 15th of September. He yes. was born in 1765, and yeah, we published it on Instagram. So guys, if you don't follow us on Instagram yet, Please go find us. You can get all this cool stuff up there. You are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So not always was Leonore regarded very well in terms of her politics. And she did not always have the sympathy of the court. And she does move to London for a while also because of that. Back and forth. Because she thought too much for herself.
0: Yeah. Well, she was a woman thinking. (laughs) Danger, uh, danger, danger. Red flags! (laughs) In 1801, Leonor's father, João de Almeida, Portugal, passed away. Her brother, Pedro de Almeida, succeeded her father as Marquis of Alorna. Leonor took her family to London, where she stayed in the palace of the Portuguese ambassador to the United Kingdom. Upon arrival, Leonor received news that the War of the Oranges had erupted. Another world was about to be born.
1: And there she was, still mm. still, see, still in seeing the <laughs> worlds being born. In 1813, when her bro- brother died without descendants, Leonor became the rightful heir to their title. In order to acquire the title and all the properties, she had to come to come back to Portugal, return and had a recognition from the prince regent João, Prince of Brazil. When the recognition finally came, Leonor Officially became Marquis of Alorna, the one and only. Wow. Yeah, spanning almost over a century, as we said, Leonor's life could give us many episodes, allowing us to dive in things like the earthquake, the rule of terror of the Marquis of Pombal, the reconstruction of Lisbon, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, the constitutional courts that she still sees when the country is moving towards a constitutional monarchy, etc., etc., etc.
0: Oh, yeah, we didn't really mention the French Revolution or the invasions.
1: No, we just said that Marie Antoinette and the blood in the streets of France. (laughs) Yeah, that happened too. And Leonor was also a witness to all of that.
0: Right, yeah. And that impacted in Portugal greatly as well.
1: Yes, yes. We'll have to get there, but it was impossible to go on to Napoleonic Wars (laughs) and invasions (laughs) right now, because otherwise this would be a whole series.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Um, we already tapped into the... Earthquake and the Marquess of Pombal and stuff. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. We promise here that we will go over the Napoleonic Wars in Portugal Eventually. at some point. Eventually. Yeah. We'll get everywhere. Don't worry. Yes.
1: Her life is really an extraordinary one that was always marked by this desire of going further and knowing more and writing things that women shouldn't getting, trying to conquer a freedom that her position allowed her to or not. She kind of marks the frontier between the Portugal that comes from the Baroque period and then the emergence of the Enlightenment and the turmoil between kingdoms, past and constitutions to come. She is in the midst of all that. Her poetry, translations and letters, everything that she did, is collected in a six-volume work that's entitled Obras Poeticas. Poetry works, but it includes a bit of everything. And that was only published later, but she did publish a lot in her life. And in her own words.
0: On the 30th of May of 1778, one year after I left the convent, Voltaire died. With him, I remembered fearing that the Enlightenment would also die. I wrote, it's not of more light that my soul needs. But truth be told, it was from it. And its philosophy that I had built my existence and thought. Now that I'm lost in solitude, I'm lullabied by the memory of hours of plenty, even if hard and difficult to remember, trying to remind them without falling into superficiality, trying to deny the fear and fright the mistakes made throughout the years. From the first weeks out of the convent, I remember with more intensity the joy of freedom but also the awkwardness of open windows of doors with no locks of open spaces without jails freedom gave me vertigo and in that vertigo i met the balls in courts the concerts the serenades the theatre place the theatre place that i had never seen before but mostly the success of the assemblies and soirees in our home, with less nobles and more artists and poets.
1: My marriage with Carlos Augusto marked the beginning of a new existence that allowed me to travel as far as I could then wish, taking me from Portugal, introducing me to a whole new world. To marry him I had to defy my parents, using persistence and ability. Today I know that it was only through the protection of Queen Maria that I was allowed to marry. I was tempestuous and impatient, wishing from others more than they could give me. Maybe that's why they labeled me selfish, unbearable, ruthless, as my grandmother Leonore. I got used to being criticized for reading books, for talking about science, politics, philosophy, for knowing English and Latin, for having too much enlightenment for a woman. And this is where I'll stop for now. Join us on the next episode.
0: Until then, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Corkout History Pod, where you can reach out to us, let us know your thoughts, and discover more about the episodes.
1: Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to us.
0: Your comments really are crucial so that more people can find us.
1: Bye. Bye!